Good morning, everybody. It's so nice to have you all here. And, well, to be honest, just even just to hang out with Pippa and Sarah. And we don't get to do this, do we? No, and I like this with my coffee as well. I know. I'm, I'm going wild on double. I've got coffee <laughs> and water. I'm bad. I haven't even got a coffee. So Emily's <laughs> got yours. All right. <laughs> I can only have one coffee in the morning, otherwise I go into like uh, my heart's like. <laughs> so I'm already uh, one coffee in, so just in, just in. Well, good to see everybody coming. I know, appreciate that everybody's just still kind of loading in. Sarah, you've just been teaching, haven't you? I've just been teaching. I've literally, I sort of feel like I've been thrown from one to the other. I was presenting all weekend in Manchester, which is great, by the way. Matt worked too. Is anyone here that was in the course yesterday? Because a few people said that they'd come. But anyway, yeah, it was amazing. It was good, Matt worked too. And then um, it's summer holidays. So I don't know whether anyone else feels like they're constantly chasing the tail, don't have any catch up time. So came today, kids are being looked after and just taught a reformer class and threw the patients out the door and here I am. <laughs> bye, nice to see you, bye, bye. Yeah. Yeah. Just go. We're going to see you So yeah, it's lovely to see everybody. Um, so let's have a little look. Have we just got, um, there's no other screens. There's 23 of us here, including ourselves. That's amazing. Mm, that's um, really good. Yeah. Oh, hi, Jenny. Hi, I recognise a few faces now. There we go. Okay, so um, how should we do this then, ladies? Do you think that we should um, just work our way through what we have? Uh, yeah. I think maybe a bit of, I appreciate that people probably maybe have met one of us, but maybe not met all of us. And I know one of the, we've had loads of questions. So thank you guys for um putting all of those in for us yeah. um I know one of the questions I think this is a great way to introduce ourselves is like what on earth is a master trainer and how do you become one I'd love to say it means we have like Jedi powers and those sorts of things I was but... thinking the same like yeah. magical powers Jedi is um, <laughs> just you've got to get Glenn and Elisa to really like you <laughs> yeah and just use mind control yeah no unfortunately it's not I, that so how about I tell you what, what I'm gonna let you guys introduce okay. yourselves and tell us what what a um what a um, master trainer is oh gosh shall we go Sarah. okay what is a master trainer um so for those of you that don't know me I am a musculoskeletal pelvic health pelvic health physiotherapist my caseloads now are predominantly pelvic health patients women's health um so I always start by introducing myself like this when I teach my courses but it was genuinely my pilates that I did pretty much alongside my training as a physio that led me into women's health and you guys you're here so you're obviously feeling the, the powers of women's health as well but um my clients would come to me with like loads of questions about their pelvic floors etc and I just realized that there just wasn't much out there for them so that organically pushed me into the world of women's health um so that's what I do all day every day um I you know never tire of talking about it really I'm passionate about it I even have my little pelvic model next to me all day every day when I'm in clinic or on the table um and then master trainer wise, I've been a master trainer now since 2018. I've been with APPI a long, 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 long time. Like probably since my little boy who's 16 was about one or two. He was really young, um, maybe a little bit older, actually, maybe two or three. But um, I think with master trainers, we, we've wrote our own courses, all of us, haven't we, as well? So we've we've obviously been you know, really passionate about Pilates. And I think we've taken it to that next level by um approaching Glenn and Elisa with our ideas and our courses and we've delivered them and we've got great feedback and we've just stuck around long enough I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and we've got Jedi powers obviously obviously Jedi powers. 
Um, so Sarah, what can you hear me okay? Written? What was that, sorry? Which courses have you written? Is it the uh, anti and postnatal reformer, was that? Yes, yeah, so I started off by um, teaching the, I wrote the Pilates wheel course. And then when we did our regional conferences, um, 2019, I think it was, I wrote like a pelvic floor module on that as well. So that was really popular. We presented that in Oxford, Glasgow, Liverpool, London, um, and then the anti and postnatal reformer. I'd forgotten about the wheel one. I want to try that. The wheel, yeah, do you know what? It was, it was really good for conference actually, because it was a bit new and fresh at the time. So it was really nice. And the only thing I'd say, they're just a bit bit sort of steady and you have to have the storage space but I love them they're really really nice but I remember that we, uh, when you did, delivered the wheel course um at conference Sarah that's when you I remember you getting made into a master trainer as well at that conference wasn't it was. yeah 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 so I think that's probably the side and seal the deal didn't it really <laughs> yeah it was the wheel the wheel did it all <laughs> but yeah no I think um um it was so I'm very similar to you, Sarah, as well. Pilates definitely led me into the world of pelvic health. Um, I think it's sort of, they just naturally go very hand in hand together, don't they? And um, there is definitely, well, what I started to realise is sort of a lack of knowledge and education in pelvic health within the general physio, you know, your, your physio training, um, I think. It's not something that, well, I was never taught about it at university. I don't know about you guys, whether you had any pelvic health modules or anything. Um, so I think Pilates really was where I started to to delve into um, women's health. And um, again, it just then developed after the birth of my children, got more interested in it. And then I think once you start working in it, you realize how amazing it is and how much of a difference it can really make to people. Um, and And... Like obviously physio pilates all well-being things are so life-changing but there's some really simple things you can do for people and it has a, a huge impact on people's lives um, and it's yeah it's it's so good to be able to share that and then also educate others to be able to share that because we're only one person aren't we and that's what you know I know what both of you are really passionate about is that education and, and sharing that knowledge so the more people we can help to develop knowledge we can help more people um and that's kind of where my courses came from as well with the menopause, um, especially through pelvic health. I was seeing so many people affected by symptoms related to menopause and then starting to put all the pieces together and realized how much as Pilates teachers, we can have a really good impact. Um, and like you said, Sarah, I think that that's partly what being a master trainer is, is developing content um, and sharing knowledge and education um, and like you say, sticking around for long enough um, to, and teaching. I think I when I think I started teaching in two thousand and fifteen. So again, it's been, but it goes so fast, doesn't it? It seems like yesterday. But um, but yes, yeah, so that's me really. What about you, Emily? Um. So I, right, I saw. I started actually. I was really lucky. My I started at Bradford. And we had Anne Johnson. So anybody who's in pelvic health might remember Anne Johnson. She now works in New Zealand. Um, and she came and did a kind of a little lecture series for us as students. And that's where it all began for me. And I went and did my student elective in pelvic health and got asked by my sister-in-law, who's also in healthcare, why on earth I would want to do that. And had I realized what I would be doing, I was like, Yes. Um, so and then it's just kind of gone from there. Um, for me, the course that I've written is Pilates for Endometriosis. Um, I I think I've always my my 
my love of Pilates is really kind of based in the fact of just how what I would call we can kind of hack the system and kind of hack the way, you know, rather than just going, oh, they've got weak quads and we need to strengthen the quads or whatever it is. It's that it's that whole body awareness. And I think we see this particularly around um, pelvic floor dysfunction and taking a wider approach to pain, particularly. And that's probably my interest is like how we actually don't just get kind of pulled into what the problem is like what are they feeling and where is it hurting or what is the kind of kind of very focused dysfunction but really how does that sort of unthread through the entire body and I think for me particularly I'm in private practice now um I I just saw through the pandemic the number of people who were coming through the door not getting the support they needed from a chronic pain perspective and particularly endometriosis with surgeries being cancelled and I just thought you know what whilst there isn't a huge um support um from the guidelines for physiotherapy and therapeutic input um right now like that's not good enough like we can't just sit on our bums and wait for um you know wait for the guidelines to give us approval to do something we have to act and I think um that's what I love about Pilates um and I'm going to sidestep into two of the questions we had from Victoria and Stevie um so I'm really sorry if I say any names wrong today I'm sorry Mm -hmm. it's all right um so um the, the thing I really love, and I think this is to address your question, Victoria, if you're here today, um, is about, you know, there is, I guess, this perception. If you spend your life on Instagram, uh, which unfortunately, I think all three of us will say we probably have to do a bit too much than we would rather do. Um, yes, Pilates does tend to seem to be like this, you know, super fit, skinny, you know, model sort of like, you know, posery a little bit. Um, and I, I get that. And I, I see that a lot. But I think what actually is amazing is that Pilates really can be really helpful for absolutely anybody and this is why I think it has real potential in pelvic pain and particularly endometriosis because there's so many elements through that you know even just starting with breath work with somebody anybody can do that and I think yes yeah there probably is things to be changed in terms about the perceptions about that and I I think there is lots of barriers to exercise and lots of barriers um, to engaging in your health um, whether you've got a chronic condition or not and if aesthetics is one of them, then, yeah, that's that's definitely something that we need to make sure is really well um, supported. But I think if you come back to all of the training that you would have done through the APPI, you can see how accessible it really is for anybody to really start engaging with movement, even if it's as simple as the key elements. Um, that's just perfect for anybody. Um, Stevie, I know your question was about, well, how do you find yourself uh, kind of evolving, adapting sort of the APPI method? I'm going to hold my hands up and go, yeah, totally, completely. Um, Yeah. yeah, Is this something you're kind of noticing in your practice? Yeah, um, I teach a lot of males, actually, which is quite quite good. Um, I had a class this morning. uh, It was actually with a a group of uh, mixed martial artists. And um, it's just trying to adapt the exercises to suit them um, and their needs. Uh, I, I, I was just, I guess I was just wanting to make sure that everyone else is adapting them um, as well. Sometimes outside of what you've been taught, but you're trying to bring in your your knowledge and your scope of practice to know that you're keeping it safe and you know uh, right for that particular person. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's spot on. You know, you you think about why has that person come to you? 
Why are they yeah. wanting to work with you? What are your skills that you can bring to it? What I have really loved, um, and again, I'm just going to keep talking about endometriosis because somebody's given me a platform, <laughs> so I'm on it, um, is that, you know, I can't always ask someone who is in pain or maybe can't lie on their front and prone because of bloating yeah. and discomfort or, and even if we think in, um, particularly for us as pelvic health um, presenters, you know, in the anti and postnatal population as well, that we, we kind of lecture on a lot. Um, there's lots of things where you, you know, the, the standard sort of approach to Pilates might not work, but you know, it's really about thinking about what are the, what's the point of it? Like, what are they trying to achieve? What can Pilates do for them? What's the really key benefits in terms of, again, broken record, breath work, um, re-engaging with the center, you know, your primary sling, your inner deep core, and then kind of, kind of flowing out from that. And this is where I think where I was talking before about sort of hacking the system, like hacking the slings, you know, ultimately you're just looking up and down the sling and looking at how you can play around with that exercise. I really, really enjoy it. It's nothing more satisfying than picking up a standard Pilates exercise and then kind of biasing, say, you know, the adductors on the anterior oblique sling and something that completely changes how they are moving. Um, I know that there's been a little question that's just popped up. Stevie had asked a question, basically, how, you know, are we sticking to the APPI, you know, very thought of kind of a specific, very kind of, you know, stage one, stage two, you'll know, level one, level two, whatever it might be, or are we evolving it? And yeah, I, I will joke with my clients quite often, I will commit all sorts of crimes against yoga and Pilates and sort of blend in and out of stuff. And, you know, that just comes from my physio background. So I think if you're working within your practice and um, you're achieving the goals that that person's coming for, you're, you know, you're you're being clear about what you're trying to achieve and where it's Pilates and where you're moving a little bit more um, left of field, then I think that's absolutely fine. Just be clear about it. You know, use those slings. It's great. No, that's great. Thank you. Um, so I run my own uh, physio practice and um, I, I seem to I use um, Pilates exercises a lot now, um, actually a lot more than any other exercises. Um, and I think it's it's the buy-in, but I think because I believe it myself now as well, so I think it's easy to um, get them to buy-in because you're so convinced uh, with the benefits of them, um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's been one of the best things I've I've, um, I've added into the, the private practice. But thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Fantastic. Um, okay, so do are you happy for me, Pippa and Emily, to answer the question about the overactive pelvic floor? Yeah, I think that'd be really good. Yeah, yeah. this is something that so Achilles asked a question. Um, what are the signs? of an overactive pelvic floor and how can Pilates help and not hinder. So I, I was quite passionate, I suppose, about jumping on this one because I think overactive pelvic floor is a term that's used in a little bit willy-nilly. Um, it's not a diagnosis. And um, you might also hear the phrase hypertonic pelvic floor. And there was a consensus paper that was published, I'm gonna say last year, I might be slightly wrong, but relatively recently in the grand scheme of things. And overactive pelvic floor, it's not a medically recognized term. So when we are using it quite really nilly, and I do hear quite a lot of you know physios in, included in this um, uh, phrase using it quite a lot, and Pilates teachers and exercise professionals, you know, what do we what do we really mean? What is an overactive pelvic floor? Um, I think traditionally people associate overactive pelvic floor with pelvic floor tension, but let's just remember that it isn't um, a medically recognized term. And if we're talking about a hypertonic pelvic floor, 
really the true way to define a hypertonic pelvic floor is if somebody has a neurologically driven hypertonic pelvic floor. We can also have a, a, a pelvic floor that has slightly increased tone that might not be neurologically driven, but these women will present with a variety of different symptoms and there really isn't one size that fits all here. So typically I'm just gonna sort of refer to the type of clients that I might see within my pelvic um, clinics that have a pelvic floor that's quite tense. So what I mean by that is I might assess it digitally because that's the gold standard way with a gloved hand to be able to assess that, to be able to feel whether there are any changes to tone. And without doing that, again, how do we know? So if you're a Pilates teacher and you know, you're seeing somebody present with pelvic floor symptoms, um, whatever they may be, the first line of treatment shouldn't just be Pilates. Really, we need to be signposting these clients to a pelvic health physiotherapist. Um, but typical presentations that you might see associated with a pelvic floor that's unhappy will be some maybe urinary symptoms. So clients can still get stress incontinence if they've got a pelvic floor that's quite unhappy. It doesn't just have to be a weak pelvic floor. It might be that they have some tension in that area. The pelvic floor is a really clever muscle and it can hold on to tension. So it remembers pain, um, it's a skeletal muscle. And just like the muscles around our neck and our shoulder can get quite tense, this can happen in our pelvic region. And if you think about it, the area in your brain, in your you know, brain that controls moving, that controls your pelvic floor that's connected to your genitalia, it's literally on red alert, evolution intended this. So when you see your ladies perhaps with pelvic girdle pain, no surprise why there's loads of sirens going off in their head and why they might experience some tension in that pelvic floor that may present as discomfort that may present occasionally as inability to to avoid to urinate as effectively maybe they may have some symptoms of constipation but all of these things are associated with other conditions as well so i think first and foremost i could go on for two days about this couldn't i and pippa and emily feel free to chip in but the overactive pelvic floor, we have to be really careful with how we're using that because in itself, you know, what is an overactive pelvic floor? How can you tell a muscle's overactive without assessing it? Um, but pelvic floor dysfunction, often we find there's urinary symptoms that can vary from person to person, bowel symptoms, sexual health symptoms. So, you know, painful sex, for example, difficulty with intimacy, um, and also as well, some symptoms of, of pelvic organ prolapse heaviness. So those types of problems. Um, Emily, do you have anything to add on that in particular with your endo background? Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm going to reiterate what you're saying as well is that, you know, there is a scope of practice issue here. And this isn't a you can't do it if you're not a pelvic health physio. This is more about some of the questions that we have to ask to understand what is driving. And this is I totally I haven't done a Diane Lee training, but I, I've read lots of her stuff and I kind of love this idea of something driving symptoms. And I often will talk to patients about symptoms being driven positively and negatively. And it's about us understanding what is driving and presenting that situation. Um, so um, as Sarah's kind of really nicely explained, you know, is, is this kind of something that's neurologically driven or is this kind of an adaptive behavior? The questions that often we have to ask are very, very intimate questions. And yes, there's just the stuff about weeing and pooing and all of that. But there's also stuff about trauma. You know, have they experienced any sexual trauma? Have they experienced any sort of physical trauma? So, you know, it's not on, you know, I've seen people before where it's not unheard of. They've had like, you know, slips on the stairs or anything like that. 
you know, is there is there anything else that might be contributing to that from a stress perspective as well? I think um, particularly in endometriosis and other, um, you know, chronic pelvic pain conditions, there is, you know, off, there's that chronicity, the kind of the length of time they've had to experience that for as well, which really changes the nervous system overall as well. So it's, again, it's looking at that whole nervous system approach rather than, again, we can get so quickly drawn into one thing. Like, what's that problem? Why does that bit hurt? And actually dialing out a little bit as well. So um, something we talk a lot about in the course is like how the, the nervous system adapts and, you know, sort of things like sensitization of the nervous system. So I think that's, again, like looking at how that is maybe driving the pelvic floor and, you know, what elements. And I guess this is for you guys from this is like rather than feeling like you've got to all become pelvic health physios, which obviously we'd love you all to be, but um, not not compulsory um, is to go. Well, what are the what are the things that you guys can really utilize and be so effective with? You know, it might be just playing around with the positions that they are most effective in terms of relaxing, releasing, but also engaging the pelvic floor. And Sarah's right. You you won't know until you've had a full pelvic health assessment and probably a pelvic floor examination. Um, but even just playing around, like, can they access their pelvic floor and their breath better in, say, four point hands and knees or maybe side lying or, you know, do they need to do a load of kind of mobility and release work around certain parts of their body to then be able to hear? It's almost like we're just trying to tune the body and the brain into each other. So actually they can become more aware of that, that connection. And it should feel, it might feel a bit strange and alien to start with, but they should be able to access these things and it should feel ultimately easier and go, often they'll say like, oh, okay, right, I can, I feel like I can actually breathe now, or, okay, that feels totally different in my pelvic floor, I can actually feel like a change in tone, or I can feel it can relax, or I can actually feel an activation, just because we've changed position, or maybe done some release work first, so again, to come back to those basics of, you know, looking at, well, can I change and help them with their pelvic floor, and if the answer is no, then yeah, they probably definitely need to go and get that assessment first, before they pursue their one-to-ones, or their classes with you, to make sure they're really getting the most out of it. I I, I agree as well, and I, I think, um, what we talk about on the pelvic floor course as well is about trying to develop like relationships with other professionals. So, you know, as a Pilates, we're in a, a kind of a u- unique position because we are pelvic health physios and Pilates teachers, but there's a lot of pelvic health physios who don't do Pilates, but they need somewhere to send these people to, you know, they need to be able to have that network because they haven't got maybe the time or the resources to do one-to-one Pilates every week for six to eight weeks or whatever that person needs. Um, so that's where, you know, knowledge of what the pelvic floor involves, the different dysfunctions that people can have, and then how to access, like Emily says, into those systems through different methods, and then being able to have the person you can then relate back to as well. So you can develop this network and that's how we're best going to support people is, you know, we can't do it all as one individual. Often there's so many other influencing factors um, that then sometimes it's good to have a network of people you can, you know, collaborate with and deliver the best quality care in a holistic way um, to these people. Mm. Pippa, whilst you're talking, I just wondered, do you want to answer Carol's question, which was how can we best incorporate breathing into pelvic floor act- activation for both slow and fast twitch contractions perfect yeah so 
Carol asked, yeah, how can we best incorporate breathing into pelvic floor activation for best for slow twitch and fast twitch contractions? So um breathing for me, like obviously is is it's just an amazing exercise in itself. It's great for relaxation, it's great for people to increase their awareness um of their body um and access, you know, into their neural systems. But it can also be a really good tool to help people access their pelvic floor. And, and we know the pelvic floor works as this in um, is co-activation with your transverse abdominis. You've got your diaphragm as well. So when we take that inhale, then there's that increase in intra-abdominal pressure, pelvic floor will descend slightly, and then you get this recoil as you exhale with um, that sort of recoiling piston. And we can use an exhale to effectively tune into a pelvic floor contraction. And sometimes it's the opposite to what a lot of people move. I don't know if you feel the same, Emily, Sarah, but when people come in, they do their pelvic floor contraction, they go <laughs> like this and yeah. everything lifts and breath hold. And um, actually they're not optimizing that system. So by teaching people to use an exhale, then you can get a good activation. And then often people go, oh gosh, actually I can really feel there's a difference there when they're using that exhale. Um, and then that's a lot where, you know, Pilates comes into it as well. And it, it's going back to sort of five key elements a lot of the time, getting a good setup, you know, posturally. So if somebody's trying to take a breath in, but they've got really restricted thoracic mobility or poor rib, rib cage mobility as well, then that's going to massively affect how they can access that breath um, to um, help improve their pelvic floor contraction. So it's looking beyond the pelvic floor. It's not just you know what's happening there what's happening in their rib cage what's happening with their pelvic posture um so for me you can definitely use breath and that exhale to facilitate a good quality pelvic floor contraction as lot alongside making sure you're looking beyond the pelvis at rib cage positioning and um thoracic mobility but sometimes so, so for a slow twitch contraction, that's okay because you've got that time to really think about it. But what you've got to be careful of, and this is just in relation to Pilates in general, we'll all know this, you know, when you start learning your uh, mat work level one, you're like, breathe in to prepare, breathe out to move, breathe in, out. And everyone's like, oh gosh, I'm breathing, but I now I'm moving my leg and now I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, they can get so focused on the breath that then they forget what they're actually meant to be doing. Um, so... It, you've just got to be mindful say then with the fast twitch you don't want people going <laughs> and then sort of hyperventilating to try and get their breath if they're doing fast twitch and um, contractions so so for me breath can be really really useful and really help people to engage and activate but you've also got to be mindful that it isn't a hindrance as well and that they're not getting too focused on the breath and forgetting um actually what we're focusing on um, I don't know if, if any of you guys have got anything to add to that. No, I guess I, ultimate, oh, go on, Sarah. Sorry, I, I was just going to say, I think that's perfect. And yeah, just being flexible with that approach as well, because sometimes you just might want to move away from the breath and encourage them to relax. And that word relaxation might just tap in more effectively than talking about the breathing. Because like, you know, Pippa said, we can get so over-focused on it sometimes. But I think it's a very individualized process. And ultimately... Our pelvic floor should be working whether we're breathing in or out. Then it's good to mix it up. But using that out breath, I found really helpful. Um, and that's the way we teach it, isn't it, as well? Like, you know, when you start your Pilates journey, 
for those new No, that's ex- exactly what I was going to say, Sarah. Just like, actually, um, you know, as much as I will bang on about the breath and, you know, utilizing breath, especially for overactive pelvic floor, actually, just sometimes getting people out of, you know, the really, really overly specific with movement, overly specific with breath to control, like movement should just, you know, should just free the body it should just kind of tune into the body i think we've even got a t-shirt now that it says that's like movement heals do we yeah. we do have yeah with movement heals and it does you know and actually just get them moving like if they're getting too bogged down they're getting too kind of um kind of joint like kind of anchored into something then yeah absolutely just give them just take them away from it or let them just move. Um, I am going to answer a question from Jenny um, Rudston about um, in, a, in a second. But Lynn, I can see you've got your hand up. Do you want to ask a question? On the breath, I use a lot of in-breath as well for that real sort of, I don't know if it's right, feeling that the pelvic floor can really have a good stretch and, and open. So in cat, for instance, I'll often think, okay, let's really work on the in-breath when you're in that extension position and opening the sit bones and really feeling that everything's quite loose and then and then coming back into um, you know, the angry cat position where I'll, well, then I might use uh, the breath out to move and then again, take a breath in to have a... So I think sometimes I use the breath in for real looseness um, and extension and really feeling quite open, but I often sort of... You know, tell people you're actually having a sort of stretch of your pelvic floor at the same time it's everything sometimes needs to be loosened off um I don't do it all the time but I don't know if that's, oh, that's right funny. is that what you think when you're <laughs> from your you're, point of view you're using the breath to facilitate the movement so sometimes the breath can help or hinder and obviously in your situation there you're finding that your clients benefit from a certain type of breath to connect and to stretch whereas I suppose it depends on the population that you're working with. So if we have somebody that really has pelvic floor dysfunction and the goal is rather than to stretch, but to actually activate that pelvic floor, then that physiological connection of the out breath and the recoil of the pelvic floor would for most people work better. But if our goal is to open and to release and just to let go, that breath to tap into that sensitization to reduce it and to help that you know nervous system is spot on. So it's that flexibility, I think that's crucial here. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly as a Pilates instructor, I use the breath out and connection all the time. But sometimes if I've got some, you know, just some time within the class, I use sometimes that real opposite breath to feel a real sense of relaxation and an opening and um, space in the body. Anyway, that's all. I think um, I think that's exactly Sarah saying those are that the it's good to have a combination of both as well, isn't it? You know, with the pelvic floor, often it is this sort of a lot of focus on activation, but the the pelvic floor is a muscle like any other muscle. It needs to contract, it needs to relax. So to exercise it effectively, we need to have both of those within a program. So yeah, I think being able to do both is is great. All right, I'm going to sidestep us again into uh, Jenny Rudson's question. You've put in two, but I'm just going to answer the second one first. Are there any hold, relax, Pilates exercises for helping pelvic pain for those who have difficulty relaxing their pelvic floor? Um, So 
I think this goes on quite nicely from what we've been talking about here from the breath. And I'm going to briefly touch on that. And I'm going to talk about the different things that I use in terms of um, during my pelvic floor examinations in clinic, but also stuff that I will use a lot for um, for people managing their pelvic pain as well. So I am a complete broken record. I'm going back to drivers. So it's about asking what is driving that pattern. Um, so in terms of the breath, um, I've done a video for this after I did an APPI live on endo earlier this year, I think. So if you want to go onto my Instagram, it's at the womankind physio, scroll down. And there's a video of me, you won't know it, but I am sat in my kitchen. It's like pink and white and I'm sat on a mat in my APPI t-shirt. And I go through um, this method of kind of using the breath to downtrain the pelvic floor. So when I assess somebody for a pelvic floor internally, um, this is one of, I'll go through the methods that I use to help to see if we can influence the pelvic floor. So number one is breath. So I'll ask them just to do some, not exaggerated, just some steady, slightly longer breaths and ask them to direct them into three places. One, the belly button, the umbilicus, two, the perineum, and three, into the lumbar spine. And I just get them to do two or three breath cycles into those areas. And I'm just feeling for tone as I do that. And I'm seeing whether or not the pelvic floor is changing its sort of resting tone, changing its length as they direct the breath into those areas. When they've been into all those areas, I'll usually follow up with that question of going, right, can you do a pelvic floor squeeze after, say, going into the belly button and relax? Does that change the sensation of what you're feeling with your pelvic floor squeeze? Um, and are there any blocks? Do you feel like you just can't breathe into your belly button or it just doesn't make sense to you to breathe into your lower back? OK, and again, it's we, we, we don't fix on anything too quickly. Just kind of step back, dial out, go, OK, interesting. Let's just keep moving with this. So we look at where the breath can be directed and how that changes what when I'm doing it, what I'm feeling, but also what they're experiencing from their pelvic floor. So that's breath. The, the other things I look at is an activation versus a stretch. So the stretches I tend to use are really simple um, and they relate to what I experience. And I'll be interested to see what Sarah and Pippa think about this as well. Um, so for tension that I see around the back of the pelvic floor, I tend to get them to do a single knee hug with um, a one leg stretch. So one leg extended out, one knee hug to the chest. And I'm just saying, does that change tension at the back of the pelvic floor um, and repeat on the other side? If we're feeling really fun and really glamorous, we go for a double knee hug during a pelvic floor examination. I'm just going to let you all imagine that. Um, I do also um, joke that my pelvic floor examinations are like the weirdest yoga class you've ever been into your class uh, in your life. And if you ever go to one like this, just walk out of it. Um, but basically, the, um, we go for that single knee hug to stretch out the back of the hip, the pelvic floor. I then feel on the opposite side in. Now, the one leg stretch um so hip extension position to the anterior the front of the pelvic floor and seeing whether or not afterwards does that change what they're feeling does it change the tension does it change what's going on with the fascia and um, the other stretch that i use is a figure four stretch so a bit of hip rotation so i'm going does flexion extension rotation and also abduction so i'm looking through those different planes of movement um, and admittedly, it is quite interesting um, kind of work version of doing the assessment. Does that change the information going into the pelvic floor? Does it change tenderness? Um, and does it change sensation? Does it change elevation or power in the pelvic floor when we get them to re-exam, kind of reactivate between them? So we've got breath, direction of breath. We've got stretches and all of us can add in a single knee hug, a double knee hug, a happy baby, a four stretcher, a butterfly abduction sort of stretch to our Pilates classes. 
Um, but it's about a little bit about self-exploration with that. Does that change what they're experiencing? The last thing we do is activation. So when I'm doing a pelvic floor examination, I have those lovely Pilates um, kind of softballs, overballs, bendables, whatever ball you have in your clinic. I have those on hand. So I'll get them to, um, I'll place it between their knees and I'll see whether or not can they isolate adduction. And I'll be overworking the hip flexors. I'll get them to do a kind of little set of it. I'll get them to do it unilaterally, bilaterally, and we'll just see what's going on with the pelvic floor. And again, after we've done that, we recheck the power, the elevation, the sensation, the tenderness. And I'll repeat the same thing with abduction. And I literally just block their knees. So I'll have one knee next to my chest and one hand around their other knee and just get them to do some kind of isometric abduction exercises bilateral unilateral and again what's the tenderness like what's how what does that change um in terms of their their tenderness their you know activation their sensation and we might not do all of that because that's a lot to do in one go um but what we're looking for there is going is this being driven um, by the breath and by the whole sort of kind of nervous system maybe stress system maybe primary um sling interaction with the breath is this being um, driven by shortened, tightened muscles that are kind of uh, around it? So, for example, have they got tightness across the, the, the gluteals, which is impacting how that's the hip is interacting with the pelvic floor? Or have we got a, an imbalance in the activation between the, say, if we're doing the adductors, the anterior oblique sling into the pelvic floor, if we're doing the abduction through the, the lateral sling in the pelvic floor, because we know the lateral hip, we've got good evidence to show us that the lateral hip muscles relate to pelvic floor um, dysfunction. So that was a lot of information I appreciate in about three minutes. Um, but what I'm trying to show you there is you don't have to do an internal pelvic floor to be able to influence the pelvic floor and the easiest thing you guys can do is explore stretch activation breath work and if you're doing that in a one-to-one -one scenario get them to recheck you know look at where they've been challenged with their pelvic floor their pelvic pain does that change things um for them kind of in the short term and it is amazing when that happens because they just go not only did you get what i'm talking about and you understand what's going on for me but you've actually given me a tool that they can that I can use you've given me a tool that makes me feel like I can actually change this and that is way more powerful than any exercise any program or whatever else you can give them that hope I know we've got a question that's popped up thank here. you so much that's brilliant thank you no worries Sarah do you want to take um Emma's question about um rollback you know in relation to antipostnatal yeah, I was looking at this actually before we were just talking about how, you know, sometimes we can overcomplicate the breath and we just want to get people moving. And it just sort of reminded me of this question. So I think it sort of moves on quite nicely to it. So Emma's asked, um, what are the current guidelines for prenatal Pilates? Uh, so pregnancy with regards to rolling back through the pelvis from sitting. So seated roll back, roll back obliques, etc. I've always had it in my mind that you should try to maintain a neutral pelvis during pregnancy. And I'm sure I was told on course, but I can't remember what course or why you avoid it. So, okay, so I think I'll start by saying, um, or just to, to get you guys to think, you know, is it practical or functional for our prenatal pregnant clients to always stay in neutral? And if we teach them to always stay in neutral, are we creating fear? around movement, whereas actually there's no evidence whatsoever 
to say that it's harmful for them to do a posterior tilt or to flex their back. In fact, they'll be putting more load and pressure through that area of their body when they pick the washing from the floor or pick up a toddler's toy or go into the shoe cupboard. So there are no contraindications to absolute contraindications to doing that. Um, Instead, there should always be considerations around why we're doing a movement with somebody. So I am just wondering here whether maybe um, someone's had a conversation perhaps about about the abdominal wall with a rollback and to look at doming. And, you know, there's a new paper that's come out recently, Caribo was involved, and it was more for postnatal population with diastasis recti, but it looked at sit-ups. So it was looking around movement and, you know, can we do this with a diastasis? Um, there's nothing to say people with a diastasis even if you have a diastasis when you're pregnant, can't do a rollback. But again, we're looking to see the impact that movement has on that particular person. So does it feel comfortable? Does it feel stiff? Do they have any control? Are they just flopping back into it? Perhaps they can roll back, but they can't roll off. So there's no contraindications as such, but there's definitely considerations around it. And it is impractical and impossible, and certainly not something that we would encourage as movement um, support systems to re-educators to suggest that we should be keeping our pregnant ladies in neutral in fact if anything what we should be doing is we should be encouraging to to move efficiently it's not what we're about we're trying to create more optimal efficient movement patterns and perhaps if we see somebody roll back and we're asking them to roll but they're hinging back and they're holding their breath and they're really creating a lot of intra-abdominal pressure that might come across as doming our job is to then give them some cues and support to get them to do that more effectively. Because every time they sit on the chair, they're going to have to go into that position. Every time you know they do something functionally, that's going to involve a little bit of that movement. So I hope I've explained that well enough. I don't know whether Emma's here today. Um, do you have anything to add at all, Pippa or Emily? No, I think that answers it. I think you say it's um, we've got to be careful, haven't we, a lot of the time that we don't create fear in movement um and that is sometimes and, and again this kind of goes back to your question as well stevie it's it sort of you know pilates traditionally was very set sort of choreographed moves but it's developed over time and then we're looking at the individual and and it's about movement and creating a positive movement experience and that's what we really want people to come away from and that's why sometimes someone will be given an exercise that is vaguely similar to one of the Pilates exercises but it's got the principles of it you've got those principles but what they're going away with is an exercise that they feel good doing and it gives them a positive feeling and then they're going to do it again and they're going to do more and then they're going to get that buy-in to it so um yeah I think it's um you answered it perfectly Sarah yeah and if anyone wants to put any questions um, in the question section, guys, I'll keep a little eye on that as well. Um, Asha asked a question earlier on. Sorry, Asha, we missed that. But is this the same for the male population? I can't quite remember what question that referred to. But yes, to some extent, we apply all our rules and principles over to the male population. Um, there are slight differences with how we would teach a male client to activate pelvic floor if they were experiencing some function. But male clients experience pelvic pain like female clients and issues with their pelvic floor so yeah i sorry i do talk about things more so from a women's health point of view but yeah men do have pelvic floors as well thanks very much for that it was more to get them to understand that they actually do have one because yeah. i spoke to a couple of men and said how's your pelvic floor and they're like no i haven't got one of those my partner has that and i'm like oh okay this is um, i need I think to that was 
Caroline's it's Caroline, isn't it? It's written the men's pelvic floor course as well, isn't there? So yeah, very deep, yeah. Yeah. And so there was a question, wasn't there, about um uh, men on on our list that we got through from Lynn about um yeah, there you go. It's come through, she's put it here as well. So um about hernias and doming in men. Um until recently, I just recently gave up my teaching my blokes only class, um, which um, it sounds like a few of you do blokes only as well, which is hysterical. I don't know if anybody else who taught blokes only mainly just got sworn at for an hour um, each time, but um, it's a lot of fun. I definitely recommend it. And I think, yeah, we often think about diastasis and doming in pregnancy and um, and and postpartum recovery. Um, my my blokes class will they swear at me all the time I don't teach them anymore so I'll, I'll, I can say this freely they have a really similar physiological presentation to some of my pregnant clients we'll put it like that um, so I think it's partly thinking rather than this being like a, a like Sarah and Pippa both saying like a man versus woman thing this is actually much more um, you know this is about the physiological changes we know that um, the kind of diastasis and doming that we see is about the change of pressure and that can happen it can happen with extreme weight loss it can happen during the menopause um, it can happen for lots of different reasons but um, particularly I think for men the the things I see in class um, is kind of the particularly the around movement I find a lot of the blokes that I see are quite tight across the front of the chest um the majority of the men who come to my classes spend a lot of their day sitting a lot a lot a lot of their day sitting at desks um so lots of kind of maybe poor spinal sort of loading lots of pro, um, prolonged maybe sort of a little bit kind of as you imagine sort of upper cross syndrome sort of stuff and actually I think it's that is one of the biggest things that influences how they then activate into their core because it's the same prompting we have the same nerve endings that supply the pelvic floor that's no different um you know if I said to all of you is it um I've just what's her name she's really close to her you can all tell me her name she says testicles to spectacles she's got blonde hair had a complete blank cherry is it cherry Cherry Baker. Baker. Okay. She's in gloss up. She's really, she's, I'm pointing that way over the peaks. That's because you will get that. Yeah, she's that way. Um, she's just there. Um, so if I said testicles to spectacles to all of you, we'd all be able to do that, wouldn't we? We'd all get that that prompt, even though many of us on here do not have any testicles. Um, but it's the same, it's a really similar prompt. So I will often in the class just use very slightly different prompts. I'll do lots and lots of work about mobilizing the spine, the hips, opening up particularly across the chest. Because sometimes, um, and this is something related to the diastasis that we can see, is that they have a hidden rib flare. And by that, I mean, is when you look at them in standing, their ribs are kind of, they look like they're in a great position. But if you are struggling um, to get someone not to dome, when you get them to lay down in supine and flat on the mat, do they suddenly appear with a, a rib flare? That would be my, my kind of one of my top things to look at. So you look at them in standing, they look okay. They, they kind of look like they can find a neutral and yeah, you know, everybody's neutral is slightly different, but you lay them flat on the mat and then suddenly these ribs are kind of like lifted and they really struggle to get that activation back down. And of course that rib flare, that opening and lengthening of those tissues is going to change the interaction across that tissue of the linear alba, across the obliques, into the primary sling. Um, and that is going to change how they activate. So 
Yes, we can use lots of different prompting. I talk about the North Sea. So I've taken a kind of a, a day trip with my blokes group off to Bridlington and we're walking out into the sea. It's rather fresh and they get to their critical groin level and they're not allowed to chicken out. They have to stay there and try and gently hover all the crown jewels away from the lapping water. OK, so that's we used to give the uh, analogy of, you know, stepping over a barbed wire fence. But I kind of figured that just would create bracing and holding of their breath. Um, so we go for a North Sea. Um, but a lot of the prompting's the same. But I'd be looking for, you know, those secret hidden things that we maybe aren't appreciating in terms of um, stiffness around the thoracic spine. Um, upper cross syndrome um, and then just that generalized deconditioning of actually being able to maintain that activation long enough so it might be that they can do an abdo prep but it's just that they can't do as many as you want to do in the class I hope that helps um I got a direct question on here I'm not sure if everybody else can see it from Olivia I'm happy for any of us to ask for this there's two questions one is Presumably for pelvic congestion syndrome, Pilates can really benefit symptoms. But what experience can you share on this? And number two, is there much um, research being done in women's health and Pilates together? I'll, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I realize I really dominate when people ask me to talk. I'll just talk. So I'm gonna be quiet for a second. Pippa, do you know much on this one for the um... the research side of things? Then yes, that there is more and more being done. Um, there, there's you know papers that are looking at the effects of, say, a modified Pilates program on the influence of stress incontinence or urinary incontinence. And, and there are positive correlations between a, a Pilates program and um, pelvic health. I don't think there's, Emily, is there anything on endometriosis and Pilates? Um, not currently that I'm aware of. There's um, a lot of the research I'm aware of in terms of endo and self-management is a lot of the digital um, so tracking symptoms, um, using different apps. I think that's partly because they're trying to get people engaged with apps so then they can glean more data more easily. And I think there'll be stuff going from there. Um, but no, nothing specific that is endo and Pilates. There, there is from a menopause and Pilates point of view, there's quite a few papers that have looked at the effects of um, a Pilates programme on different factors so sort of lifestyle questionnaires and um flexibility posture muscle strength and there's been some really positive correlations um looking at that the issue i guess with with it all is that all the pilates programs are slightly different <laughs> that there's not a standardized pilates program um if you like it's sort of somebody's said right well i'm going to try these exercises and we'll see how it works so it's sort of difficult to take one paper and then correlate it to another because the exercises are different the delivery is different um the uh, duration is different um so yeah but th there is definite positive correlations between menopause and pilates and i know from an incontinence point of view and modified pilates um I don't know if you've seen any other research, Sarah. I haven't seen anything. I haven't personally read anything on pelvic congestion and Pilates um, that I've seen personally. No, so I've not really come across anything specific to pelvic congestion. Um, I would have a couple of clients that would attend my clinics underneath that pelvic pain umbrella with the pelvic congestion. Um, and as for research, Pip's just hit the nail on the head there, whereby a lot of studies will 
incorporate pelvic floor exercises into a regime, but they don't quite specify how they've done that. Now, again, I suppose, yeah, from a, a class point of view, what is it we're trying to achieve? So are we marketing Pilates for improving pelvic floor strength? Um, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit here and say, when we're trying to strengthen the pelvic floor, even as pelvic health physios, most pelvic health physios don't load the pelvic floor enough. So more than often, women are given this blanket form prescription to go away and, you know, use your squeezy app, do 10 second holds, 10 of them, followed by 10 fast on and off reps. And you have to do that for three to six months, more than three months if it's working to get your results. But if you were to go and strengthen your quads or your glutes or your upper arms or your back, would you do it three times a day? You'd hit the gym three to four times a week and you'd use your 70% one rep max principles if you were going to do it properly. And really, that's what we should be doing for our pelvic floor when it's a bespoke rehab pattern. So as much as we'd love there to be more research on Pilates with pelvic health, it might not be the research comes through for pelvic floor strength, but it comes through for more patient reported outcome measures with uh, relation to quality of life. So has Pilates helped my menopause symptoms? Has Pilates helped my symptoms of, you know, pain management? Um, and I think that's what we'll probably see a little bit more. And it'll be a bit gray and a bit hazy and difficult to really try and pinpoint what we really want, because we want Pilates to be great for pelvic floor strengthening. We want to give women a Pilates program. We know it's going to help them. But I don't I don't think we're going to find that. It's very specific and individualized. So I don't know whether I've gone off on a side tangent there, but. Oh, I, yeah, I agree. I think that like you say we kind of want this like, magic um combination of exercises that's going to cure all but it isn't like that is it it's sort of as you can probably guess it's very individualized um and but from a group setting as well though we can still cover off a lot of those things as long as we're looking at the whole spectrum of it you know we're not just focusing on contract 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 or release release you know it's that combination of of things that we're looking to deliver um, but you're right. I don't think we'll ever get something that says this exercise specifically affects from a Pilates point of view, pelvic floor strength in this way, because there's so many other contributing factors. But actually, you know, obviously, yes, that is an element of my say physio practice, but really it is the lifestyle questions, isn't it? You know, how are you feeling in yourself? Are you doing things? You know, they're not having to toilet map anymore or, you know, the, the, it, their quality, it, they don't ever say, oh, my pelvic floor feels so much stronger. Really, they just say, oh, I, I feel like I can live my life. I can do things now. And that's the difference I think we're looking at from a, a Pilates point of view as well is this lifestyle factors that we should hopefully yeah. change. And body yeah. awareness as well, isn't it? Like that sort of tapping into your body and understanding it a little bit more. Um, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, um, Emily. No, it's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, when they start forgetting, that's a great sign. Like, forgetting, oh, I forgot to do my exercises. Why is that? Well, I've just been, you know, hadn't really bothered me so much. And yeah, always a, always a good sign they're getting better. Always do warn them of the danger, that's the danger zone. Like, you're going to get, you'll be better, but you won't have created your threshold. We need a threshold of recovery. So by threshold, I mean, as in like, there's your symptoms you've kind of got to that point where you're no longer experiencing your symptoms but I want a threshold I want a buffer zone so if you get a chest infection or DMV or I don't know just whatever reason it is you're not going to be hitting those symptoms really quickly um just going back to Olivia's first question um on um she said about for pelvic congestion syndrome Pilates can be really beneficial um 
yes and no just like they've been saying I think my the only lady I can think of with pelvic congestion that I have seen recently you know pelvic congestion um sometimes gets really is it's frustrating for women to get an, a diagnosis with it um they there's lots of stereotypes in this as well they'll get sort of presumed that they've been got some sexually transmitted disease and there's all sorts of stuff that goes with that is and now kind of shame embarrassment um and then sometimes just feeling that not really being listened to but um usually it's, it's it's something that i mean for the lady i saw she had had it for about three or four months which is pretty average before i saw her for a physiotherapy perspective um and again it was about getting her moving again um so she wasn't fearful because the pain and the discomfort was stopping her moving so I guess it's a bit too wrapped up. It's like Pippa was saying, it's like the quality of life changes. So um, taking down the fear avoidance, helping them to find movement that their body um, will tolerate and they feel comfortable with, but also teaching them how that's going to benefit the the physical condition, but getting them back into some normality of with their body, taking down those sort of sensitized, um, um, sensitized, um, sorry, sensitized system is going to be really, really beneficial. Um, but other than that, I think that's my, my limit of experience um, with that. Um, Pippa, you were talking before and you mentioned about um, menopause and I think um, Kate put a question on how does menopause affect ligaments and tendons? Do you want to jump on that? Yeah, definitely. So obviously we we know there are a number of changes that occur as our hormonal levels change as we go um, through um, perimenopause and into postmenopause. Um, and one of those is on the muscles and the tendons. So with a decline in estrogen, we will lose muscle mass and strength. So not only do we get the muscles get weaker, we, we lose the cross-sectional area of the muscle becomes um, less as well. So you can get what's called sarcopenia. Um, so the muscles themselves will become weaker. Um, and then the tendons, so the decline in estrogen affects our collagen production. So the tendons as well then um, become stiffer because we've got less collagen within those um, tendons. So what your resulting factor is, is a stiffer tendon that's not as easy to transfer load through with a weaker muscle. So then the muscle's weaker as well. So the muscle's having to work harder because the tendon's not doing its job, uh, but the muscle's also weaker. So then that's sort of a, a prime area where we might then develop some injuries muscle and tendon related injuries um and again you know from a physio point of view a musculoskeletal point of view when I look back now I think oh gosh how many women did I see of this age category with a rotator cuff tendinopathy or a glute tendinopathy um you know Achilles tendon and I would never have put it down to actually they're you know 49 and they might be having some perimenopausal changes um, that would never have crossed my mind because nobody ever kind of educated me on that. Um, and it wasn't talked about, you know, um, especially I think menopause definitely in the last five years has seen a, this sort of surge of um, increased media um, presentation, which is really good, um, but can be negative in the fact that sometimes people are putting all this stuff out there that maybe isn't quite right. Um, but it's definitely brought into the public eye. So, yeah, it, it can have a, a, an effect on our muscles and our tendons. And then that we can see this increase in injury or um, a risk of injury in this area. So often, you know, and it is when you look at the World Health 
um, organization guidelines, they recommend that um, men and women should be doing strength training um, two to three times a week um, as well. So it, as, as well as doing our aerobic exercise, so actually strength training becomes so much more, it's important anyway, but it's so much more important as we get older. Um, and that is often the one thing that people stop doing is they stop doing, you know, they stop lifting things, they stop doing the things that they would normally do that would have kept them strong. So it's trying to find a way that we can introduce strength training safely and accessible as well you know people think oh I've got to go to lift and I don't want to go to the gym and with all those people and lift heavy weights and I'm scared of doing that and I don't want to go into that environment um but it's teaching people that they can do strength training but in a way that's accessible you can introduce it into your Pilates classes which is what we talk a lot about on the menopause course as well and, and how to make our exercises strength specific um so that we can help to improve this muscle um, and tendon function um and also for me it's not just about that population group who are going through it at that time it's education for the group before as well so kind of looking at your muscle and your tendon health like a, a bank account like you would with your health floor as well. want to invest in our muscle strength and in tendon health as soon as we can because if we can go into perimenopause with our bank account high we are going to have this natural depletion but it's easier to top it back up again whereas if you're going into it in an overdraft then it's going to be harder to top it up so it's about education as early as we can and then finding exercises that are accessible to help with these things that we know will happen with the muscles and the tendons um and yeah that's basically it. <laughs> i could talk for ages on that sorry that's great. Yeah, I love that um, analogy of a bank account and being in debt and investing. And yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I think that people understand it a bit more than they like. Oh, actually, it, it, sometimes they see it. I, t- I talk to a lot of people like, oh, that's ages off. This is going to be wild. And then, like, yeah, but it's not about then. It's about now and what we can do. And it's just about creating. And that's again, I do get bang on about Pilates. Like, well, we're all here. We all love Pilates, but it, it's um it's an exercise that people can do and they feel better after doing it and they it's sort of you can fit it into your lifestyle and it becomes a habit and once it's become a habit people need it don't they and then they're going to keep doing it and it can change and evolve with them as they go through life I wonder if we um whilst you're talking about hormonal changes or we we keep moving into some of these other questions that I hear um Mel has asked she's a few stages in her question but she was asking about how the pelvic floor affects performance especially after pregnancy and with age hormonal changes I know you've touched on that from the menopause and then also Jenny um was also asking as well like and then, you know, with respect to all the changes that happen in pregnancy, she's asking, um, please, can you tell me about the changes we make to Pilates during pregnancy and afterwards? I wonder if we can touch on those. Yeah. Sarah, do you want to jump on about the postnatal um, effects, pelvic floor? Yeah, just um, prompt me to the question again. Sorry, who asked the question? So I can answer. Um, Mel. Mel and Jenny. So Mel Douglas at the top of the list. And then Jenny, I think, is about eighth down. She's got two part question. Mel and Jenny. Sorry, I just had to switch back over to my screens. Okay, so again, there's no one size fits all here, really. So if we just briefly 
look at Jenny's question. Please tell me about the changes you made to Pilates during pregnancy and afterwards. There's no one size fits all. And it is really important if you are working as um, a Pilates teacher that if you're teaching that population for your own insurance requirements that you do the course that really supports you through that. So, you know, within a few minutes, we're not going to be able to teach you what we teach you on two full days with reading material. So that's really important that, you know, you know that that's, that's important to get ready to add to an extra string to your bone. And our course, the anti and postnatal is for anti and postnatal. So um, either side of the pregnancy. Um, and then how does it affect pregnancy and how to address those problems within a class setting? What levels of weakness and dysfunction can you deal with? So again, if somebody has a specific problem and a presentation I always make a point of setting expectations from the start and a class is not the environment to deal with an individual bespoke program we can make adaptations for sure so if somebody finds that a certain position sets off their pelvic pain for example we can modify that accordingly if somebody tends to be really grippy and really tight I might say to them just forget about you know for today the contraction focus on the breath instead and just you know really use that time to to feel good rather than to making your symptoms feel worse but it isn't a time to address those bespoke problems and what level of weakness dysfunction can you deal with well Let's remember our gold standard care. So stress incontinence, for example, if your clients are telling you that they have stress incontinence, particularly if you're a health professional, we have a duty of care that extends beyond that, that appointment with that patient to be able to signpost our patients to the right services. And the gold standard care, as an example, we'll use stress incontinence, is for women to have a one-to-one digital pelvic floor examination nothing replaces that so that's what we really should be advising them to do but the reality of it is is that most women don't seek any support for their pelvic health presentations for a number of years and also even when they do they're on a big waiting list for two years so we're not saying a bit like Emily said before we don't expect you to all be pelvic health physios but we shouldn't be pretending to be the only person that can address those problems at the time and remember our scope of practice so the gold standard for stress incontinence is to have that assessment so we can give them a bespoke program in order for them to strengthen properly. We can't do that in the class. So they're not going to get the best results just attending Pilates if they have a certain presentation. But that doesn't mean that we can't make a difference. For the women coming through that have stress incontinence, we know that they need to do a pelvic floor strengthening program. So they need to know how to activate their pelvic floor. Again, most women on verbal and men on verbal instruction alone, but the research is mainly around women, don't know how to activate their pelvic floor. But that said, do we just go, well, let's wait for everybody to have an assessment before we teach them? Or do we teach them the cues and the tools and the language so they can go away and add layers to their increased effectiveness? So I would say, as long as your clients fit your own criteria to come into your class, we can offer some support but we're not addressing individual complaints. If somebody is doubly incontinent, they're probably not going to feel very happy in the Pilates class where their pelvic floor strength is zilch and every time they stand up, they massively leak. So that's not appropriate. But if somebody is managing some occasional urgency um, and they have feelings of heaviness in their pelvic floor, we can adapt those exercises to suit that particular person. But you really want to be working hand in hand with somebody else. So I hope that's helped now. Um, and that applies not just to pregnancy, but it's to, to anybody, really. So, so yeah, I think um, as well, you know, like you say, actually, 
we're only if there's people who are sort of saying they've got stress and confidence I bet if you asked anyone in your classes if you ask your classes you know who in this class actually gets leakage if they laugh cough and sneeze over a third of the class are probably going to be saying yes I do but they're not seeking help because a lot of it maybe they a lot of people don't seek help do they for it so they may be experiencing the, the symptoms and they're already in our classes um as well so sometimes by talking a bit more about it and highlighting it you might think actually this isn't shouldn't be a normal thing that I'm experiencing they might then go and seek more help or you can signpost them a bit more as well to, to get the right help as well um have we answered all the questions I just was um scrolling through I'm sorry I was slightly I was answering another question um on messenger there, and I think um the the ones that I think hopefully Michelle your question about um your client who leaks when she runs and it's really getting her down um you said I haven't done the pelvic floor floor course yet but have this in the pipeline will this help me to help her um and I think I mean Pippa this is your course so I'm gonna let you you answer that and then I think there's just one more question I think maybe two that we haven't answered but actually two and then I'll yeah I'll let you answer that question first though yeah so um Michelle yes um I would so I would hope that it would to give aware of what could be contributing to that leakage at least an understanding then of of how to question further and where to signpost to um so it's that you know you, you're probably getting this sort of this gold standard of um a, a physio or like a pelvic health assessment um for digital examination and you know it's it's about having a recognition, like you say, of our scope of practice, but then what you can do as Pilates practitioners to best support your clients. Um, and that's what, you know, I hope to deliver off the pelvic floor course is that you have an increased understanding, increased awareness, um, and then how you can then incorporate that into your Pilates practice as a Pilates teacher. So it's, it's, it's Pilates specific. So I'm not going to say you'll be able to cure this lady's symptoms purely with pilates but it should give you the tools to know where to go to help her get the best um and i know there's quite a few people on this um on the screen i can recognize a few names and a few faces who've done the pelvic floor course so i would hope they would say the same as well okay i'm gonna just bring together the, the last two questions i can spot unless i've missed any um from julianne and is it anya i'm sorry if i said that wrong um so julianne says what are the ways to include a baby in a pilates session especially mums have difficulties to go for regular exercise if they don't have any support to take care of their baby and i think this kind of links with um anya's question of we know that patient compliance and exercise programs is an issue and that we have to be clever when selecting exercises to ensure adherence and results. What are your top three exercises for women's health? Um, so, yeah, I agree. Um, adherence, engagement with exercise programs, you, I think, and I'd have to go and find the, the kind of the stat, the, sorry, the reference first. I think your success rate, if you just give somebody exercise, and don't engage them in anything else is about 17%, which is just really depressing, isn't it? 17% um, likelihood um, for them to engage and to get success if you just give them a home program and go off your trot. Um, and that's for so many factors, isn't it? I mean, 
how many of us have ever, you know, if, okay, let's switch just the other way around. Think of all the things that you've intended to do, whether that's for health, finances, learning, whatever, and you've kind of come up with the way to solve it. Have you stuck to every single one of them? I haven't. I'm terrible. I'm like, I'm total magpie. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about that rather than going, well, that's depressing. There's no point in us handing out exercises. It's really looking at the understanding what it is we're trying to achieve with that and why. Um, so I don't think there are three ultimate exercises because um, however many people you have seen, that's how many times that by three, that's how many ultimate exercises there are for pelvic health. Um, you know, you're thinking there about what has that person come to see you about? Um, and what is it that's really um, upsetting? Sorry, I've got somebody strimming right outside my window. That was helpful. Um, so um, what is it that they need changing? What is it that is most bothersome about their presentation? It's not usually the, like we said, the, the quads weakness that is the real problem. It's what does the quads weakness mean to their life? What does it mean to the quality of their life? The How much those symptoms get in the way of what they're trying to achieve? So I kind of switch it around and kind of work out what it is that they really want to be able to, to feel. What's the actual real lived experience of being better? And then you kind of um, backtrack it from there of, well, actually, if we're trying to achieve I don't know, the the freedom to not have to think about their symptoms so they can, like, um, I've forgotten the name of the person who asked the question about leaking when running, so they can just go for a run. You know, what does it actually mean to go and do that? And then it's about backtracking from there. And it might be that, you know, what's driving that. So it's, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. There are loads of great things you can do, um, but just be careful not to get stuck in the same routine. So I'd encourage you not just to hand out the same things, hand out the same pelvic floor exercises in the same way with the same props, you know, get inquisitive. That's the, the thing I always ask whenever you come on my course. If you've been on my course, I think Asha, I think I don't know if she's here still. She's been on my course. I know that for sure. Yes, you are. Um, I start pretty much every course going, I just want you to be inquisitive. Like, don't get too quick to find the answers. Just be inquisitive. Explore what we're talking about. And let's come up with even more new ideas of how we can approach things. So no ultimate three exercises. I'm really sorry to disappoint you on that. Um, but um, I think in terms of engaging, um, including, sorry, including baby in the session, um, we run a mummy and me sessions at our, our clinic. And Laura, who actually runs them now, um, one of my colleagues, she does all sorts of things that like we double mat. So there's plenty of space for baby to be. They're not just all wedged onto one mat and trying to do their exercise all together. And um, we run it in in a circle as well. So all the babies can be in the center and it's a little bit more engaging until they start getting really mobile. And then you're like picking their hands out of each other's eyes Um making sure that you've got great support for them. So, you know, a few simple toys, some spare wipes, some spare nappies or whatever it is you feel comfortable. There's a brilliant personal trainer here in Sheffield where she actually employs somebody just to be on baby duty. So her classes are not the cheapest, but it does mean that actually she's got the support so that the mum can come along and not be like, well, there's no point me coming because I'm going to do like 20% of the exercises and not actually get any of it done. And um, it is not easy. There will be no perfect time of day length of session for absolutely everybody and what works one week for one mum will not work the next week for her because babies do what they do but just making it as welcoming and easy for them to have a crying baby a pooing baby a feeding baby within a class would be my best advice to make sure that they are included so that their babies can come along for as long as possible I think the other thing as well is as a teacher you know I've taught quite a lot of mum baby pilates and 
it's knowing that your class is going to be different. It's you don't have a strict flow to your class. You don't get that same vibe that if you're doing, you know, just um, without the babies there and being adaptable and, you know, don't feel you have to stop every time a baby's crying or somebody's changing the baby. You know, you, you just have to be flexible and adapt and go with the flow in the class. And then if you're relaxed, then the mums are really relaxed. But I think if you try and keep a set structure, then you can see everyone gets panicked because their baby's crying or they've got to feed or change. And yeah, just as calm as you can be and easygoing. (laughs) Um, But it is hard as a teacher to teach the mum and baby. When you've done it for a while, you get used to it. But when you start off, you just be prepared that it's not the same as teaching and um, you have to be adaptable like trying to keep jelly in a sieve you just got to keep scooping it back in and if they ever do go quiet that yeah. is the moment you do a relaxation with the mums yeah. even if it's like for three minutes if the babies all suddenly go quiet I would sack off the plan and go right everybody yeah. lie down we're going to do a meditation quick go <laughs> just because yeah. otherwise that might not happen for another eight <laughs> weeks uh, all the babies quiet at one go um I'm just going to double check Pip have we gone through all the questions the only one I can see is about a prop um oh from Melissa, are there any props one can purchase to help with explaining pelvic health and pelvic floor to ladies in a class? Um, so, Sarah, I know you just nipped off, but um, like a model of the pelvis with the pelvic floor in it is um, is a really good prop to have on hand just because a lot of the people, they think they, they know they have a pelvic floor, but they don't actually know what the pelvic floor. You've got your model there, haven't you, Sarah? Keep with your old hand it's got a name hasn't it your pelvis oh I've got um Virginia Virginia yes Monica um <laughs> I don't know they got confused not sure who's who now um these are great these are cheap and cheerful these can just be ported about I didn't pay more than 20 quid for these to be honest and then we've also got creme de la creme simulators that I use for teaching which are like over a thousand pound but they don't come out in classes <laughs> they're more for students but these are great these are Fab because you can illustrate the pelvic floor because people don't often realize how how vast the pelvic floor is. We describe it in textbooks like a sling. So they think it's like a little thin line that goes from back to front, whereas actually it's like huge. Well, it's not it's not as big as your bottom muscles, but it you know goes from front to back, side to side. So it's the bottom of the box. It's the only horizontal load-bearing muscle in the body. And this displays it really well, I think. So so yeah. No, yeah, you don't have to, but it is a useful visual for people to see, isn't it? And just to have, so I think it's, um, yeah, if that was a, a prop, I would say definitely it's worth having. I don't know, Emily, if you used anything else you would say as a I think the only thing prop. that I add into that, which is probably a little bit more transportable, especially if you're doing classes where you're traveling around to different locations, um, there's a few different, and then again, the names have slipped out of my head, of printable, downloadable, layerable pelvic floors that you can laminate. And you just get these little Velcro sticky dots and you can kind of make them into a 3D model and then unvelcro them and they go flat into a folder. Um, I can't remember the names of them right now. I think it's Mandy Russia. Russia. I think she does one. Yeah, we've got a really nice one. I haven't got it with me in this room, but literally it's like a nice 3D model. And that can be really useful as a, a teaching prop, again, to get people to, to sort of know what, what you're talking about. Yeah. And again, it's just a download print. You can. I think some of them are free to download print. Um, and then you just laminate them and I just bought some little 
yeah, Velcro sticky dots so that you can then fold it so it then becomes 3D. But again, that's really nice because you can under. it. Um, my colleague uses, she got one of her kids' toys, you know, the ones that are all like pegs all attached with different elastic bands and it can squidge down and ping up again. She uses that a lot to talk about diastasis and um, sort of the interaction of like the breath and the pelvic floor. Um, but I, I think there's... Um, Anna Crowell, who is a pelvic health or was a pelvic health physio who specialized in fascia, she used the kids toy as well, which is the little plastic one that expands and then drops back down again. Um, it'd be really good if I knew the names for all of these things. I'm afraid my dyslexia is having like a first class morning. You mean like a slinky, like a, one of those slinky toys? No, it's like um, it's hard plastic and it kind of it, it goes down into a ball. And then if you pull it, it oh, all kind I of... know. Yeah, I don't even know the name of them as well. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, we've got one of those too. Sometimes it's nice to have as well, like um, as a teaching material, if you're talking about soft tissue, um, these will be our, our parting words really now. So you can all go and stock up your uh, your toolboxes. But a net because that can help to illustrate uh, the fascial connections and how everything's connected so you know you get your clients to hold on to one end of the small piece of cheap net that you can get from Amazon you hold on to the other side and you took one corner and you say can you can you feel that in your corner and they can and that can just sort of allow them to connect with how movement's all associated and how one part of the body can affect the other and if you've got tension in one area you know, C-section scar, for example, that can influence what's going on up and down that movement chain as well. So, yeah, there we go. Oh, but thank you, everybody. Um, coming along, I know some people have left and uh, I've got a client sat in the waiting room now, so <laughs> I'm going to have to go. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. It's been amazing. And I know that this is recorded as well. So um, it's been so nice to get together with Emily and Pippa as well, actually. <laughs> so, uh, and I wish I would have had two cups of coffee, Emily, like you. <laughs> I know, they both, the water and the coffee have both gone now. So yeah. Yeah. But thank you, everybody. And then maybe we'll get together in the future and do this again, really, with, um, yeah, budding pelvic health Pilates teachers. <laughs> Oh, thank you for coming, guys. Have thank a lovely day, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye bye.